Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So there is a show that I love on TV right now called Sherman's Showcase. It was co-created by my guest, Bashir Salahuddin, and Diallo Riddle, his friend and longtime collaborator. They are also the stars of the show. Bashir and Diallo went to Harvard together. They worked together as writers on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. Then they left to do their own stuff. One of those projects was Southside, a sitcom which is set in Chicago and stars Riddle and Salahuddin, among others. It is so great. Uh, It's really funny, and we'll talk about it in a bit. The other project, Sherman's Showcase, and as I was saying, I love Sherman's Showcase. You could probably call it a sketch show, but it has a very unique format. It's pretty unusual in the world of sketch shows. It basically takes the form of a variety show, like Definitely very informed by Soul Train. There are also notes of the Muppets and I guess maybe something like Laugh-In. Bashir stars on the show as Sherman McDaniels, who has been hosting Sherman's Showcase for nearly 40 years. Every episode looks back on some of the show's greatest hits, musical numbers, clips from Sherman's movie and television work, and occasionally infomercials. Remember infomercials? Here's an example. Brothers and sisters, have you ever been getting down at a party blissful and unsuspecting when this happened to you? Yo, this singer's white. Yeah, but I'll f*** with this. Y'all know these tunes, Roxanne by Sting. I can't go for that by Hall & Oates. The entire Steely Dan album Asia. These are white singers, so these songs ain't foo-boo. They're foo-butt for us by them. And now they're all on one compact disc. Sherman Showcase presents, now that's what I call white music, Volumes 1. I'm talking Another One Bites the Dust by Queen and What You Won't Do for Love by Bobby Caldwell. That's right. Bobby Caldwell was white. Bashir, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to have you on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Somewhere in heaven, Tina Marie is mad that she was not in that sketch. Oh, you would. I literally, until this moment, it did not occur to me. But shout out Tina Marie. You know, shout out to her voice. Shout out to how much she was on black radio in the 80s. Shout out to, honestly... The Tina Marie Renaissance quietly came from this video game called Grand Theft Auto Vice City, which was one of the first video games of all time that actually had real music on the radio when you drove around the car. I'm a big For gamer. sure. And they had, this is before artists knew anything in terms of video game music, so everybody said yes. So the Grand Theft Auto Vice City soundtrack is incredible. I think it's probably since not been repeated for licensing reasons, but that soundtrack had uh, Square Biz by Tina Marie, and I used to play that thing. Woo. That's top 10 yeah. all time for me. That's, that's hot. Like literally top 10 songs ever of all Just time. Just a monster jam and a jam. That, that bass like, ugh, filthy. She raps on it. <laughs> Let's go. And you let her, you let her rap. Come it's on, fine. Man. Way hey. to go. You know she signed to Cash Money, right? Before she died, I'm a hundred percent. She put out a record on Cash Money, a hundred percent for real. Shout out! Yeah, we learn. The more the more you live, the more you learn. Tina Marie, love her. Okay, so here's my first question. Mm -hmm. So, Don Cornelius, the host of Soul Train, (laughs) 
who is this the spiritual forefather of Sherman from Sherman's Showcase. Yes, he is. Was he a cool guy? Mm. You know, I don't. Um, I can only go by what I saw as a fan, and he was the coolest guy. He was out of time. He was, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think if you watch Soul Train, it begins with him sort of, <laughs> like all TV shows with, with hosts, deeply in the zeitgeist, right? He's like in, he's in the river with all the other artists. They're all swimming in the same direction, right? And then, like, <laughs> as it goes on, then there's this moment where, like, the hip-hop starts to come on. And then there's a little bit of, like, you look and you go, like, I don't know, I don't know if Don liked this. I don't know if the... I don't know if he booked his artist or if the, if the crowd, you know, his people were like, because when you see Don Cornelius in the, those episodes where it's like him and Marvin Gaye, you kind of get a sense that like after, like they went and got a drink and like these are like, these are friends, you know, it was the same parties and stuff. At least like a sort of uncle-ish figure. Like it, yeah. he feels maybe like, to me, he felt like a little <laughs> bit 1966 and 1971, yeah, sure. but, <laughs> but like there for it, like ready to go. He got it. Yeah. He got it, right? But then in the, in the, in the later seasons, the, there is some comedy. There is some comedy in just like him talking to groups like, you know, uh, Leaders of the New School or, or H-Town or somebody. You kind of look like, I don't, I don't think Don listened to this album, guys. I think, he, <laughs> I think, I think he said, who is this group? Okay, let's do it. You know, sort of Ed Sullivan, right? Just like, all right, let's just do the show and I'll figure out who these young folks are. But, it uh, lives in my memory mm-hmm. in this kind of weird liminal space. And mm-hmm. I think it's one of the reasons that Sherman's Showcase works so well for me. Mm-hmm. Because I've watched a lot of whatever on YouTube. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've watched a lot of uh, the JBs or whatever on oh, Soul Drive. It's great. Best. But when I was a kid, it was the late 1980s, mm-hmm. mid to late 1980s, and it came on UHF mm-hmm. on a weekend mornings or something. Yeah. And I I remember it occupying the kind of the same space as when I was that age, when I was like six, I couldn't figure out if Mr. T was a real man, <laughs> a cartoon character, a fictional television character, or a wrestler. Yeah. Like, I knew I loved him, but I couldn't figure out which was the real Mr. T, and it all felt like a dream. And Soul Train was the same Mm -hmm. because it had Don Cornelius, who was so weird to me. Mm. Then it had the cartoon train that made me think it was a cool cartoon show about Mm -hmm. a cool cartoon train. Mm Mm-hmm. And then it had the musical performances, which I liked. And then it had the dance sequences, which I did not understand at mm. all. I was like, mm. what happened to the band? Yeah. So it is like so many different mm-hmm. weird things at once. Mm. <laughs> so legendary. So groundbreaking. And yeah, that cartoon train was funky. I mean, we do that on our show, Sherman Show, because we have a lot of animation. There's a sense of a variety show to it. But it also doesn't move like a traditional variety show. An earlier episode, and we kind of tried to emulate this. He's sort of doing bits. He's doing sketches. He's he's out there shooting hoops with Marvin Gaye. He's you know he's doing the in studio commercials. A lot of swings are being taken, and then of course as the show evolves, I think music becomes like <laughs> the main thing. But at first, Don was like, "What are we doing this week? Let's go. Let's, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna change it." And when you think about the fact that that was the only place. Uh, that that existed. The only place where some of those artists were performing, uh, the fact that it was so popular at one point, you know, uh, uh, Dick Clark, 
apparently made his own version of it. I forget what it was called, like Soul Town or something. It, it, it's really one of those things where the reverberations, the power of that show echoed far more greatly, I think, than, than people realized. Especially for those of us who, like, I'll, I'll never forget, like, I, I'm from Chicago. But I had friends in, um, and we, my family originally uh, moved to Carbondale, which is south of uh, southern Illinois, because my parents met in college, and they went to college in Carbondale. So they, you know, they had, I think they had my brother there, and then they moved to Chicago and had me, then they moved back, and then they moved back again to Chicago. But when one would go to Carbondale, because I, I had, you know, some sort of like play cousins and things down then, we would go there like, you know, when I was like 10, 11, 12, and it was interesting. That was their tethering to all of Black America was shows like Soul Train. That's where they got their full diet of connectivity because they weren't like me living on the South Side where, they, you know, you walk out your front door and everybody is. And so I think those shows' importance also was was a way for people to feel connected, particularly Black folks who, who were maybe living in some, some less populated areas. Uh, and so, again, I think that the outsized effect of that show is, is, is probably immeasurable. He also owned the show, didn't he? I don't know for sure, but it's I believe he does own it, yeah. You know, I think he had seen what happened to all those artists in the 50s and 60s. And he's like, I'm not making that mistake, you know. But sometimes owning this show is also because to get a show like that on the air is probably a Herculean effort at that time. Even more still to come with Bashir Salahuddin. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. My guest is Bashir Salahuddin. Bashir is a comic actor and writer. Alongside Diallo Riddle, he has created and starred in the television shows Southside and Sherman's Showcase. The second season of Sherman's Showcase just premiered on IFC. Oh, and he was also in the new Top Gun movie, the one that made $74 billion trillion. Let's get back into our conversation. Sherman's Showcase is... Really, you know, it's a sketch show, but really it's mm-hmm. a music show. It's mm. secretly a music show. Mm. Was that what you conceived of when you conceived of and, and pitched the show? Was it like, we want to do mm. every kind of song? So it's it's interesting. I think we wanted to make, Diallo Riddle and I wanted to make a full entertainment vehicle. We had done sketch comedy. Um, for years, we actually started doing sketch comedy. We did, um, we had our own sketch comedy troupe um, when we first moved to LA years ago, which uh, some great folks in it. And then we, by hook and by crook, ended up on one sketch show, which was Chocolate News on Comedy Central. And then we ended up really discovering our voice and also really putting our name kind of in the comedy world when we worked for four years uh, for Jimmy Fallon. Again, variety, but mostly sketch. Our, our department was sketch. So we knew we wanted to do a sketch comedy show. We were like, we want to do a sketch comedy show. But I think for us, you know, when you look at our, our sort of amount of Malcolm Gladwellian man hours, right, that 10,000 hours that we had put in, it was like, oh, you know, we don't need to do this the way that anyone's ever done it. I think we owe it to ourselves and to any fans to challenge ourselves and say, what is a format that we can do with this that is um, – Unlike anything else, and at the time we had also just done the sketch at Fallon called, I think it was Jackie Neptune and the 
the planetariums. <laughs> it was Jackie Neptune and the planetariums. It was like a Temptations group where each member had a different planet on their back. <laughs> and we were singing like, because I'm obsessed with space. And we were singing like space-themed grooves. And I think we were like, yo, man, this is, this is the show we want to do. Because Dial and I really love music. We met in a music group in college. He still to this day spends like parties and does stuff. We love music. We really respect and adore musicians. Wait, what kind of music group was it? In it college? was in college. It was an acapella group called Brothers. We sang like in like, you know, different tea stops around Boston for like one person. Um, we'd be out there, you know, not going to class, not studying, um, but singing. You were at an jams. Ivy League university. Yeah, I was. And, and you I, guys, and you decided to take the single dorkiest <laughs> element of Ivy League education and take it to subway stations not many and also uh just you know different plazas around town they have these little like uh, right you know they have these little i, I want to call them uh, um i just got plazas. back from the comptroller's yeah. office i have a list of plazas <laughs> these are things that the people of boston demanded of us no it's funny when you first get to college especially in a, a big east coast school right uh you're in class one day all of a sudden these kids run in there looking preppy singing singing tunes and you're like this is the wackest I've ever seen. Aren't they singing like Ida Rose or something like that? They're singing a lot of like old Irish stuff. They're singing, you know, the classic acapella tunes, um, you know, uh, Old Danny Boy, stuff like that. And you're like, this is so dorky. And and they're also singing like upbeat, jazzy versions of R&B tunes. What's going on? I mean, there's literally nothing dorkier than the beatboxer in an acapella group. Like, truly. Shout out Key and Peele for that hilarious acapella sketch. But I will say, like, the, the the Stockholm Syndrome that takes over when you go to these schools sets in quick because about two months later, you're like, oh, man, we should do that. <laughs> and so we did. But to our credit, we wanted to do it differently. We didn't want to sing those songs. We sang a lot of R&B. We sang a lot of, like, Jodeci, H-Town. You know, we sang, like, a lot of, like, uh, uh, Shy, Silk, 112, like, all these cool R&B groups. So we thought we were like sort of upending the form. We were not. We were just dorkily singing R&B. Let's hear some music from Sherman's Showcase. Uh, this is a delightful hollow notes pastiche called Marina Del Rey. Oh my God, I love this song. There's a reason that a lot of television shows do not have original music in them, and it is because it is a lot of hard work yes, to it is. write and record original music on <laughs> yes. a television schedule. It is. I mean, Rachel Bloom from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend mm. will tell you that. You know, any, anybody, the, I'm sure the people on uh, Bob's Burgers mm-hmm. and uh, Central Park will tell you that. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, it's too much work, mm-hmm. too fast. Yeah, and that's what you got to deal with folks who, are just already doing it all the time. That specific song you just mentioned came from two places. It came number one from Diallo because he's like, <laughs> he's always laugh. He, he likes to make jokes about like, you know, like, hey man, we everybody's talking about LA, but we're gonna do a joke about we're gonna do a, a song about Glendale. 
you know, G-Town. <laughs> nobody cares about Glendale. I'm sorry, but shout out Glendale, but nobody's talking about Glendale. There's some great right. Glendale content on the show. There is, lo- because the show we, we say is based in Glendale and Sherman, and his cheapness treats Glendale as if it is the entertainment capital of, of the world, which is not. Uh, but with that song, so it came from 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 his point of view of like, we got to do a funny song about a place nobody ever talks about, Marina Del Rey. And then there's a group who are incredible, the Knox. And the Knox are musicians. They're actual real musicians. And he somehow through his DJing and knowing music people thing, met those, the, the, the Knox. And he said, hey, I want to do this song. And then they were like, great. And they worked with him on it. And so that's how you get that music. That's how you get music that's actually written by a musician. And so if we had to write music, it, it wouldn't happen. That being said, there are songs this season and the first season that are original melodies that Diallo or I or both of us came up with or somebody else. And so every now and then we'll stumble on something kind of good and we'll give it to our musician friends and they go, you know what? It's not bad, actually. We're going to do something with this. And so we're very proud of those rare moments. But ultimately, we, you know, we know what we can do and we know what we can't do. I wonder if part of the thing that draws uh, Neo to come on your show oh, and sing you, a Neo. song about how he has a time machine. Yes, time loop. <laughs> um really good song about him having a time machine. Yes. But I, I would imagine for John Legend or Neo or Fonte or whomever, mm. like there is a special appeal to getting to go do something funny that is also both black and mm. weird. Mm. That like the weird silliness mm-hmm. and blackness, that they mm-hmm. don't have to trade one for the other. Right. They get to do both at mm-hmm. the same time. You know, um, if if that is part of the appeal, then I feel proud about it. I think weird is very important. I feel like specifically, you know, again, Sherman Showcase does not, it's not born of, it's not like a fresh idea we had a long time ago that we finally got to do. Sherman Showcase in some ways is born of tremendous frustration at going around Hollywood pitching TV shows and having folks not get it of being told to our face by white executives, oh, black people won't like that. This has happened to me on several occasions. I think people think, oh, that's a weird Hollywood story, Then, and it feels um, perhaps heightened. It's not heightened. That is actually a very grounded statement. I've had white executives <laughs> look at me in my eye and go, are black people going to like this? Or like, are they going to get that? And so for us, as black kids who did not fit in the box, who liked everything from Pee-wee's Big Adventure to the movie The Explorers to... Uh, Fraggle Rock, obviously the Muppet Show is like Sherman Showcase borrows a ton from the Muppet Show in terms of the backstageness, the craziness, the, the Kermit being sort of like this character who's trying to essentially herd cats all day, every day, and you cannot herd cats. All those things inform it. And so we had that experience, but we also have the sort of chip on our shoulder of, of, of being angry that every time we try to go, like, we want to do this uh, TV show about these uh, black guys in space, and they do time travel, and they go, like, black people in space? Come on. Come on, man. Black people in space? In space. You know, it's like, and you have to fight these fights, or you say, oh, you know, we want to do this show about fantasy uh, characters. And it's like, well, they don't have to be white. Well, I mean, it's fantasy. It doesn't exist, guys. There's no. Here's, here's a terrible secret, uh, America. There's actually no such place as Middle Earth. It doesn't exist. It is not findable on a map. Where do hobbits live, then? You live in your imagination, man. Middle Earth is inside of you. Oh, wow. Like all these other places. Also, uh, to be fair, it's England. Right. But anyway. It's like <laughs> a combo it's essentially of inside the of English me and England. I think it's New Zealand, the New right. Zealand countryside. Yeah. The point is, though, you, you have these people whose who's, who's sensibility and brain is so limited by their own personal interpretation of reality. I mean, Diallo says this all the time. He's like, I'm pretty sure George Lucas didn't grow up on a foreign planet. 
You know, nobody was telling him, make it grounded and relatable when he's pitching Luke Skywalker. Then I go, ah, we don't know. You know, make, do, write about your own experience, you know. And it's also us sitting in tons and tons of meetings and having executives, and we come to them with something ebullient and fun and silly and vibrant that we know our people want to watch. And they're like, well, what about the moment where your character cries and 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 really understands the depth of sadness of the black American experience? And we go like, that is it. The, the, watch movies in the 70s. There's tons of it. Let us make the thing that is joyous. And it, and then we were told no a lot. And so again, what you're seeing in that weirdness and that quirkiness is so much wish fulfillment for us. It's so much of us finally having a chance to do both Frederick Douglass as a time traveler and also a sketch about uh right this this season one of my favorite sketches is called Dark Xenon. And it's about it's it's a it's a it is a alien robot space opera set in the future. It is goofy. But I would watch the hell out of that thing if I had to. We also have Westerns, and then we also have great music and great songs. So it's, it's just us doing all the things that folks were telling us, no, you can't do it, and, and, and your people won't get it, which is just a terrible thing to say to somebody, but it happens. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have more with Bashir Salahuddin. We've talked a lot about Sherman's Showcase, which is great. But what about Southside, his other television show, which is also great? We'll get into it. Stick around. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, it's Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun. I am breaking into this programming to say thank you to Max Fund's members. Your purchases in this year's post-Max Fund Drive patch sale raised over $50,000 for Trans Lifeline. Maybe you already know about the good work that Trans Lifeline does. If you don't, They're a trans-run organization that offers direct emotional and financial support to trans people in crisis. If you want to learn more about the work Trans Lifeline does or support them further, go to translifeline.org. Thanks for supporting Maximum Fun. Thanks for supporting Trans Lifeline. And thanks for being awesome people who want to do good in the world. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Bashir Salahuddin. He's the star and co-creator of two of the funniest shows on TV, Southside and Sherman's Showcase. Southside, while it is ebullient. Yes, it is. It is also as a, uh, is, is very grounded. It has Mm. a slice of life quality to it. It sort of flashes through characters living in a relatively real life. I mm-hmm. mean, a lighthearted, silly version of real life, mm-hmm. but a relatively real life. Mm-hmm. So it's a very different kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What made you want to make that show? That's a good question. So I think when we were at Fallon, we had already had, we, we had already knew that we wanted to do our own thing. And, and to his credit, Lauren Michaels at one point even told us, you know, I think you guys are ready. I won't do my Lauren impression. Everybody has one. But, you know, he said, I really think you guys are ready to do your own show. And we said, oh, oh good. We feel the same way. Because so we knew we wanted to get our voice out there. Because J- Jimmy Fallon had been generous. And he had been thoughtful. He'd been really the best kind of boss we could ask for. Yet, as an artist, you still have to go your own way. At some point, Michael McDonald has to go, all right, guys. It's been fun. At some point, Lionel Richie goes, all right, uh, you 25 guys, the Commodores. It's a lot of us. I'm going to go do something else now. You know, there's an evolution that happens in, in artists' lives. And I, and we, I think it's worth noting here, Jimmy Fallon has <laughs> a very specific voice. Yes, he does. He has Jimmy's voice. As a voice. Com- yeah. comic performer. Correct. And is a very talented and mm-hmm. successful man. Mm-hmm. It might not be 
it let's slow jam the news might not have been a bit that he pitched in a room well you know it's crazy um and I've said this before, and I'll say it again. We wrote Slow Jam the News, but we did not come up with Slow Jam the News. Slow Jam the News was conceived of by a white guy, Gavin Purcell, who's a producer on the Jimmy Fallon show. Did he and, really? Yes. He came I up didn't with, know that. He came up, not with the bit, he came up with the phrase Slow Jam the News. And he came in one day and he said, what do you guys think of Slow Jam the News? He, he said, I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know how it works. And so we were like, that's hysterical. And we knew exactly what it is. We knew how it worked. And then we... Send it to Jimmy, and then he did a pass on it because everything is actually very collaborative in comedy. Everybody does a pass. Everybody's looking. Everybody's talking. So Jimmy had a, a big hand in how that came about. But to his credit, he really felt like until Dial and I took it and wrote it, it, it didn't know what it was. And then and then we figured out what this thing is, and then we kind of ran with it and ended up writing, you know, for the president to do it. So shout out Gavin, good guy. <laughs> but he is a good. I do guy. think that to his credit, again, here's something else Jimmy did. We would be doing bits, and every now and then, we, you know, this is about a year or so, and I'd give him a bit and say, like, hey, man, we want to do this. And he would look at it and go, ah, I, I, this is, I don't want to do this. It's not for me. We'd be like, oh, okay. And he's like, but but y'all do it. And we say, what? He's like, yeah, just, just do it. Write it up, and we'll put it on the show. So that sense of, like, oh, you guys can, in some ways, sort of create your own lane within his, his space also supported the idea. That we want to do our own thing and want to have our own voice. Because, again, like you just said, Jimmy is Jimmy and we want to be us. So we want to be us. And uh, But Southside specifically, you know, we'd had this really great moment with Chris Rock. I know it sounds like I'm all over the place, but we were doing a sketch comedy show years ago. And it's when Chris Rock was editing, I believe, his movie Good Hair. It was at HBO. We were doing an HBO sketch comedy thing online called uh, The Message, which is like how I really, really got started. And those sketches are online if you can find them today, folks. And Chris was like, hey, man, you guys write sketch? He said, Hollywood's going to try to make you write sketch forever, but you need to write characters. He said, you should learn how to write characters and learn how to write specific characters in the in in the space of a TV show of a narrative TV show because that's something that people who come from the sketch world are often pushed away from and I know for a fact that when we were trying to sell shows there were absolute absolutely conversations that our agents would tell us about like yeah they feel like they know you guys want to do a cool show about being in Atlanta because originally we wanted to do a show about Atlanta where Dial is from we wanted to do something about blue collar folks in one of our hometowns and we hit set it up at HBO um, but you know again. Uh, that show, unfortunately, for many reasons, which I don't want to go into again, uh, uh, did not end up airing. But we knew we wanted to do something with characters. Um, and we really felt like, let's do something about my hometown, Chicago. And at the time, Chicago was much maligned in the news. And it was it was being called all these awful names. And I was like, that's so crazy because that's not my experience. When I go there, it's fun. And, like, you get off the airplane and some dude goes, hey, man, nice shoes, brother. Where you get them from? <laughs> you know, People talk to you who don't know. It's like, I don't even know this guy. Uh, one of the my friends who I just worked with on uh, wait that person isn't trying to take your shoes. No, he's he's cool. He thinks they're funny. I mean, he he's trying to be funny. He thinks you're cool. He's like, oh, I like those. So people just talk to you. They just there's there's no like getting to know Chicago. There's no getting to know faith. People just hey, what you doing here? Like it's just direct. And and in some ways, Chicago is like a small town in a big city. There is a sense of a, a Chicago point of view, and so we were able to tap into that. We were able to do that, and I said, let's show the world a lighter side, a funnier side of Chicago from the POV of the people who have all the side hustles. Because in Chicago, it almost feels like everybody's got a side hustle. I don't care if you're a, a lawyer or a teacher or, or, or a sanitation worker. You know, you might go to your attorney's office and he's like, oh, and by the way, man, I'm also doing this um, 
you know, I do these little parties on the weekend. It's $15 entry. It's a place just for young professionals to mingle, man. Come be up, you know, and it's like, oh, okay, all right. And also the, the probate case, we should look at that at some point. So that is Chicago. Chicago, you got you got people, everybody's striving. And I said, that's not anywhere on television. And so to his credit, my brother Sultan at the time, uh, uh, two of my really good friends from, from growing up, they're twins, Kareem and Quincy. You saw them on the show. I grew up with those guys. They were all just really funny dudes. One of them worked at this place called Renna Center. And my brother's like, hey, man, I know you want to do a show in Chicago. Why not set it at Renna Center? And we did. We figured it out. We actually, uh, me, uh, Diallo and our executive, other executive producer, Michael Blyden, who we met on Jimmy Fallon, we rode around with Quincy on his route at Renna Center, picking up and dropping off furniture and meeting people, talking to people. And we just said, oh, this is a show. And it's a show because it's like The Simpsons. You know, it's there's a central place. And then when the show first came out, people were like, oh, it's like a black, the office. And I was like, not even close. There just happens to be an office in it. But ultimately, the city of Chicago is our office. And, and we were really going for The Simpsons. I mean, I can tell you right now, Southside's aim is to be live action. The Simpsons It's a show where anybody can have the lead episode. So in The Simpsons, you have like, this is a Bart episode. This is a Chief Wiggum episode, right? Southside can do the same thing. Sometimes it's me. Sometimes it's this other person. But you get to go by virtue of being in that rent center truck. Now you have freedom to go all over the city. And so for us, it was a way that the, the actual rent center place was simply a way to show the entirety of Chicago to everybody and to show people how silly and fun and lighthearted the show can be. And I love it because Chicagoans have just told me so many times how grateful they are for that version of their city, that depiction of their city. Your character on the show is a cop <laughs> who's pretty square. Yes, he is. And has a charming and corrupt partner. Well, I'm married to in real life. <laughs> Congratulations on that. She's a delight. She's a joy. Shout out Chandra Russell. Um, I want to play a clip from the second season. So uh, Officer Goodnight, which is your character, mm -hmm. and Officer Turner, mm -hmm. your wife's character, Chandra Russell, mm -hmm. um, are searching for a man selling fur coats. Yes. <laughs> That's right. But it is during a heat wave. Yes, it is. Um, and your character does not understand why nope. they're looking for fur coats nope. in the middle of a heat wave. And it's uh, turns out that it's because that's when they're on sale. Correct. <sighs> Wrong one. Again. How hard is it to find a damn house selling some fur? Logic police here. On the hottest day of the year, you got us driving around whilst on duty looking for, quote, a dude moving furs out of his crib. End quote. Not even the storefront, by the way. Just his house. And exactly. Yeah. On the hottest the day of the year, okay, I'm about to pay a quarter of the price for some luxurious furs made by a local black business owner. No, no, that. He could be Portuguese. Yeah. Obrigado, bro. I just need to call my girl. <laughs> That's it. You know what I love? Um, I, I have a lot of friends who are doctors because I went, you know, where I went to school. And I've asked them, like, which is the most realistic doctor show? Like, and they'll go like, oh, it was Scrubs. Scrubs is the one. I'm like the silly show where everybody's making jokes and it's a macabre. Like, yeah, that's 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 closest to the vibe. And so that's one of the things that I think we we want to do too on Southside. And so, you know, we got these cop characters, but we're not gonna be doing no episodes about who got shot and there are so many other TV shows where you can watch uh uh people of color get shot. You know, if that's your thing, go do that. On our show, you're gonna see them argue about fur coats. Uh, you're going to see characters try to keep his Omaha steaks from melting. You know, you're going to see these people have these small human moments. But when you do live at that level and at that price point, it means everything. You know, we've often, I've often talked about our show and said, in our world, $50 is a lot of money. 
Now here, you know, in Los Angeles and, and in entertainment, that is not a lot of money. But on our TV show, if somebody's got 50 bucks, that's like a big deal. And I think that's the world that I grew up in. And that's the world that I was so excited to explore in, in, in Southside. And so the other thing about that show in terms of its creation was, you know, we had spent years trying to get a show on the air, listening to other people, doing, you know, casting these people. And who are the hot comedians? Let's put these hot comedians in. And then we began to ask ourselves, like, wait a second, like, who do we find funny? And if you ask most people who the funniest person in their life is, you know, they might name a comedian, but usually it's like, oh, my auntie, she's hilarious. Oh, my, my, little, my little baby cousin, he'll make you laugh in three seconds. And so we just said, well, let's put those people on TV. So we use my wife and the twins and my brother. And two of my boys from high school are on the show. My other brother and his friends from high school are on the show. My sister's girls on the show. You know, it's like all these Chicagoans. And in fact, people ask us all the time, like, what's it like shooting on the South Side? We shoot a lot on the South Side. Not exclusively, but a lot. And I say, you know, it's interesting. Everybody on the South Side is convinced that the one thing missing from our TV show is them. And so that's what it is. And you know what's crazy? Sometimes they're right. You know, this season, Southside season three opens with a dude who I literally met on the street selling snow cones. And he made me laugh my ass off. And then a couple of days later, one of our producers went and met him. And he didn't know what they were talking about. Because I was like, go, go to this block. There's a guy there. Find him. We're going to put him on the show. And he has some really funny moments. And so there's a bus driver, season one. That dude is an actual bus driver that just made us laugh. And so ultimately... As we try to redefine Chicago away from all the negativity, our best bet is to let the city speak for itself. And there's no better way to do that. Most of the people on that show are from Chicago. Most of the actors are from Chicago. I would say over 90% Chicago. I was just thinking on the subject of $50 being a lot of money. That's a lot of money, yeah. I was walking down the street in my neighborhood, and I had this thought that I had made it. Mm. And the reason was <laughs> that I had $100. Yeah. And it wasn't in my shoe. There it is. I was like, this is in my pocket. Because if yeah. somebody rolls up on me, I'll give them my $100. I got something to give them. I got another $100. I got something to give this them. This isn't my only $100. Yeah. I don't have to keep this under my sock. <laughs> exactly. Like not even one intermediate step no. is in the side. <laughs> but the serious one is where it's underneath your foot. Yeah. Because no one wants to go there. Nobody wants to deal with that. It's not just that it's hidden. Mm -hmm. It's in a gross place. I, I think there's a sense in Hollywood that if you happen to be born poor or lower middle class or working class, whatever word you want to use to say you don't have a ton, a ton of money, uh, that that is what you're obsessed with. And the opposite is true. You're obsessed with the same facile, silly things in the news as everybody else. You, you, you want, you know, like I remember one time I was doing this project and they were talking about, oh, and then at the, at the height of the project, we're going to go out and we're going to give away uh, free money to people people who really need it and we're going to show it and they're going to be grateful and i was thinking to myself clearly nobody in this room grew up poor nobody poor wants to be seen on camera getting charity that is not how poor people think they don't they want the opposite nobody poor wants to go to high school and be the dude in the pay less shoes nobody's going to think you're frugal they're going to think you whack you know so it's like you can't assume that the things that are, are challenges for people are also things that they're obsessed with and I know that because I grew up that way, right? No, it's actually silly stuff. And they're talking about entertainment news and they're talking about movies. And, and then they have as robust and diverse a set of interests as you do. We told people all the time, like, the South Side has astronomers and librarians and lawyers and it has hustlers, too, and some gang members and everything else in between. But it is not one thing. And, and Hollywood, I think, still struggles with that. You know, and hopefully with these two shows, we can continue to kind of hammer away at that and go, you guys just don't know. Just let us speak for ourselves.
Well, Bashir, I'm so grateful to you for taking all this time to talk to me and for your great work. Thank you so much for having me. Bashir Salahuddin. Sherman's Showcase is a wonderful program. You can watch seasons one and two on IFC Now. And I insist that if you're the kind of person who enjoys a good Faith Evans joke, oh, you're going to love this show. It's such a great show. And his other show, uh, Southside, is a kind of like a a slightly silly slice of life comedy with a panoply of characters from, from across South Chicago. Oh, it is so funny. It's so great and sweet and pleasant. It's great. Go, go watch that on HBO Max, too. Great show. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Thank goodness. We finally reached sweater weather here in Los Angeles, which is anything below 80 degrees. And uh, unfortunately, it rained the other night. I don't know who you call when there's no storm drain by your house, so the rain just stays there. Have you got an idea? Tweet at me, at Jesse Thorne. How about that? Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Tabitha Myers. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It was written and recorded by The Go Team. They got a new single out. Go check it out. Thanks to them and to their label, which is Memphis Industries. Nice of them to let us use that great music. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us there. Give us a follow. We will share with you all of our interviews. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 